This is a message by Pastor Mark Fox at Antioch Community Church in Elon, North Carolina. For more information about the church, go to antiochchurchnc.org. Uh, this morning we're going to be studying 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 7. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. This is the word of our Lord. Amen. Thank you, Larbeth, and thank you, worship team. God is good. So we are talking this morning about the power of humility. There's a paradox even in that title, isn't there? We usually think of humility as weakness. Maybe we think of meekness the same way. Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they shall what? Inherit the earth. Yeah, meekness is not weakness. It's strength under control. And the same with humility. Humility is not weakness. In fact, it is a master principle in relationships, as Jesus teaches us us through Peter here, and it's applicable for every walk of our life. It's powerful in its application. You know, Peter has taught us already, this is kind of a, a continuation of the theme we've already seen. Peter has taught us to be subject. He's taught us to be submissive. He's taught us to be humble in relationship to others. We can submit to every human institution, he told us. Why? Because we are free. We are free. We, we submit as free people. Not, we don't use freedom to cover up our evil, but to live as servants of God. He said a servant can freely submit to his master. He said even if you are unjustly treated by that master, you can suffer that. And in fact, if you do suffer unjustly, he says, it's a gracious thing in the sight of God. God pours out his grace in abundance when we suffer unjustly. He's taught us already that Jesus freely submitted to the cross. How could Jesus freely submit to the cross? Because he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Jesus submitted to the cross because he trusted the Father. He submitted to the Father. And he taught us that wives can submit to their husbands and husbands can honor their wives again because there's great, there's great freedom there when there's submission, when there's honor shown one to another. So Peter's going to continue this text in this text that we will look at under three main points, clothing, perspective, and relinquishment. You know, the people in England like to say to Americans who complain about their weather, it's very drab and dreary at times there. They like to say, um, there, there is no bad weather in England. There's only improper clothing. And so we learn from that, right? And so there's nothing, really, there's something we, we all need to wear every day that's much more important than a raincoat or carry than an umbrella. I know Annie, Annie said, right, you're, you're never fully dressed without a what? Oh, there you, you know that musical, don't you? I like that. You're never fully dressed without a smile. But I like what the Bible says even better, that we are never fully dressed without humility. Peter follows 
this encouragement to the elders with likewise. Remember, he's, he's told us about the elders and, ha- and how they have a responsibility to lead and shepherd, but it's to be done uh, not as those who lord over, but as examples. And so he says, in the same way, in the same way that the elders are to submit to God's calling on their lives, he says, likewise, you younger ones are to submit to them. Now, younger here does not necessarily mean uh, age. It's, chron- it's not chronology here. It is, is maturity. It's spiritual Maturity, the word literally means recent or new. You recent converts, you new Christians, make sure you submit to those who are leading you. It's especially important for younger believers to be under the authority of people who know the word better than you and who've walked it with the Lord longer than you so that you can learn from their example. Literally means, he says, when you're to be subject to, be subject means to place yourselves under, to place yourselves in order. Again, this is a master principle that applies to all relationships, and this master principle flows from the fountainhead of the Trinity itself, right? We know that because Jesus submitted himself to the Father and came to die for us, right? It's the same word here used to subject yourself that Paul uses in Ephesians 5, for wives to be subject to their husband. It's the same word in Luke chapter 2 where it says Jesus came back from Jerusalem with his parents. Remember, they had to go find him there. He was in the temple teaching the elders at 12. But he came back and it says that he was subject to them. He submitted himself to these earthly parents because that was what he was supposed to do from the time he was 12 until the time he was 30. Not start a ministry on his own. It wasn't time yet. And we see the same thing in Romans 13 where Paul says, be subject to, submit to every governing authority. Again, because humility is an operating system. I I think it is the operating system for believers. Humility is the primary operating system. I think it's the greatest fruit that you see on Christians is their humility. That's why Peter does not stop with younger Christians here, but he expands this admonition to all of us. He says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Why, Peter? Why should we do that? He says, because God opposes the proud and give, gives grace to the humble. Think about that sentence for a moment. God opposes the proud. He literally holds the proud at arm's length. And yet he gives grace to the humble. This same verse is repeated in James chapter, chapter 4. So Peter and James both heard the same thing perhaps from the Lord. Some believe this came from Proverbs chapter 3. But e- either way, he opposes the proud. I like what Sam Storm says about this. He says, to think that the omnipotent God of the universe might oppose a mere finite human being is cause for serious reflection and a commitment to humility at all costs. We're not fully dressed in the morning to go out and greet the day unless we first put on humility. It's, it's, it's an act of the will to, to, to walk out every morning, to walk through your day in humility. Peter saw this in the upper room in Christ himself where Jesus took the servant's clothing, if you will, a servant's apron. He girded himself as a servant and he got down on his knees and he washed the disciples' feet. 
He who is perfect humility shows us who are imperfect in our humility how to walk that out, what it looks like. So don't leave home without it. Don't go home without it. Men who are working, women who are working outside the home, don't go home until you put on humility. A lot of fights happen as soon as the man steps in the door, don't they? Or the woman, right? They're both hungry. They're both tired. And unless we put on humility when we get out of that car, it could be bad news. Put on humility. Maybe we should get in the habit of saying to our spouse, hey, honey, don't forget to put on your humility today. Hello? And a mark of humility is that you can receive that encouragement from your spouse. Edmund Clowney says the humility of those who serve Christ is not merely an absence of pride or the awareness of limitations. Christian humility is realism that recognizes grace. There it is. Humility recognizes that I have and I am and I move and I have my being in Christ and it's all of grace. And Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians where he says, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. That none of you may be puffed up in favor one against another, for who sees anything different in you? Well, what do you have that you did not receive? And if then you received it, why do you boast as though you did not receive it? I like that, right? So walking in humility is recognizing that I don't have anything apart from Christ, and what I have is by grace and it's all Him, and it's all grace, and I've received it from Him. I didn't work this up on my own. I'm not anybody special. Paul says, what, what's different about you? And this was Paul, the apostle, the premier apostle, the greatest evangelist perhaps the world's ever known, the, the, the church planter uh, par excellence. And, and yet he's saying, look, I am what I am by the grace of God. In fact, I'm a chief sinner, chief of all sinners. And if Christ can save me, then he can save anyone. There was a humility there that Paul had that recognized grace. I like what David Guzik wrote here. He says, right, some marks of humility include the willingness to perform the lowest and littlest services for Jesus' sake. Consciousness of our own inability to do anything apart from God. And I like this one. The willingness to be ignored by men. Wait a minute. I thought we we're supposed to build our brand. Thought we're supposed to, you know, try to get likes and, and, and people need to like us on the internet and, and et cetera. What if we're ignored by men? What if we're ignored on the internet? What if we're ignored at the party, at the social, at the football game, at church? Hopefully we're not ignored here, right? But what if we are ignored by men? Then we need humility, don't we? And now look, listen. Listen, humility is not self-loathing. Humility is not thinking poorly of yourself. I think it was C.S. Lewis who said, you know, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. And I like what Paul said in Philippians 2, 3, 3 and 4. He said, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. But then he says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. You see the balance there? We consider others more significant than ourselves. We humble ourselves before others. doesn't mean we just sit around and just feel sorry for ourselves and don't even look out for our own interests. You know, we just become this, this, this sh hollow shell 
No, you look out for your own interest by going to work, by doing your job, by loving people, by following Christ. But you also look out for the interests of others, loving one another. So how do we do this? Well, there's a perspective that Paul or Peter gives us here in verse 6. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. So he's told us, told us to clothe ourselves in humility, but then he kind of backs up and says, oh, by the way, the only way you can clothe yourself in humility is to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. I don't think we can be humble around other people unless we're submitted to God and we understand our relationship with God and we're humbling ourselves under him that, that he is the one who's in charge and I'm submitted and I'm following his will, not my own. I'm not living life on my own terms. Acknowledging his mighty hand should move us to humility, right? We saw his mighty hand last year when we were working through Genesis, and we saw the humility of Joseph as he was moved from the pit to the prison to eventually the palace. And, and, and it was just, Joseph was a man of hum, humility. He, he did not uh, build his brand. God's favor was upon him. And that's what it took for him to be able to move forward uh, to eventually the number two man in all of Egypt. We saw his mighty hand in delivering his people through the Red Sea. When they were backed up against the sea and there was no human possible escape for them. And the mighty hand of God parted those seas and moved his people through. We saw the mighty hand of God with the three Hebrew boys who were thrown into the fiery furnace. The fiery furnace that was so fiery that the people who threw them in were burned up by the fiery furnace. And the only thing that was burned up on the three Hebrew boys was the cords that bound them when they were thrown into the fiery furnace. Mighty hand of God. We, we saw the mighty hand of God on that Sunday morning when Jesus burst through that grave, he came up from that grave and the angels roared. We saw the mighty hand of God on, on the day of Pentecost when Peter preached and the Spirit moved and applied by grace through faith salvation to 3,000 people who came to Jesus that day and the church was born. But not only that, we saw the mighty hand of God working in Peter who in his pride and his fear and his lack of trust and his lack of submission to Almighty God, he denied the Lord three times and was cast down. You know, I wonder, was there ever a morning for the rest of his life when a rooster's crow did not bring that moment to his mind? But the mighty hand of God restored Peter, didn't it? For the most self-willed of us, the most stubborn, proud, self-willed, self-oriented, self-actualized Peter in that courtyard, Paul on the road to Damascus, me in my teens, and you probably as well as a teenager or a young adult, each one of us can be chastened and humbled and restored. The mighty hand of God doesn't just part seas and, and, and save people in fiery furnaces. The mighty hand of God chastens the proud, humbles us, 
and then restores us so that then we can be useful. You know, when that happens, there's no limit to what God can do because there's no limit to God. The infinite, almighty God, the mighty hand of God is not stayed, it's not shortened, it's not limited by any of man's weakness and abilities. So that leads us to verse 7, relinquishment. You know, Catherine Marshall, you may know that name. Remember her? Um, was that Peter's husband, right? She wrote a book years ago called Beyond Ourselves. At least I think that's the book where this story was told. And that book made a, a huge impact on me and Cindy when we read it. It's an old book. But here's an excerpt where Catherine is talking about this concept of a prayer of relinquish, relinquishment. I had never heard that before, but she, here it is. I got my first glimpse of it, she, she wrote, in the fall of 1943. I had been ill for six months with a lung infection. She had not been able to get out of bed for six months. And a, and a bevy of specialists seemed unable to help. Persistent prayer using all the faith I could muster had resulted in nothing. I was still in bed full time. One afternoon, she said, I read the story of a missionary who had been an invalid for eight years. Constantly, she had prayed that God would make her well so that she might do his work. Finally, worn out with futile petition, she prayed, all right, I give up. If you want me to be an invalid, that's your business. Anyway, I want you even more than I want health. You decide. And in two weeks, the woman was out of bed completely well. Catherine Marshall understood that there was a place that she had not come to in her sickness that God wanted her to come to, and that was for her to simply surrender the outcome completely into his hands. And when she prayed, she got up from her bed as well. Listen, relinquishment is a letting go, but with hope. It's a letting go with hope. It's not fatalism. It's not res resignation where we, we sigh and say, all right, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. Whatever, God, you know. But relinquishment is a giving over of our cares and concerns and fears and worries to God. Trusting in Him alone for the outcome. So that I think that's what Peter is getting to here when he says, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Cast. The word literally means throw. You don't throw them at God. <laughs> you throw them to God. You, you, you throw them off. You get rid of them. It's an act of the will to take your anxieties and cast them onto the Lord. And notice it's total relinquishment. Cast how much of your anxiety? Yeah. It's not just the anxieties that you don't think you can manage in your own strength. Because let's be honest, we cannot manage any of our anxieties in our own strength. We can't do it. You know, Martha is an example of a woman who was anxious about many things, and she was resentful like everything because her sister Mary was not anxious at all. And she came and she told the Lord about it in no uncertain terms, you know. And Jesus rebuked her gently. And he pointed out that the way Mary was serving the Lord was the way that was most important. Edmund Clowney wrote, Mary's or Martha's many concerns grew from her pride. Pride in many dishes that made her a servant of the dinner. 
When we cast our cares on the Lord, we often find that they were the concerns of our pride, not the cares of His kingdom. I got permission from Jeremy Troxler to give this illustration, but you guys who are at the men's retreat remember what Jerry shared, but uh, Jerry, Jeremy, you don't mind if I call you Jerry, do you? And it was powerful. And here's what it was. He said a few years back, he was over, overwhelmed by the, his many responsibilities. If you know anything about Jeremy, he carries a lot on those big, broad shoulders of his. Many responsibilities. And he finally said to the Lord, I can't do it. It's too hard. I just can't do it. It's too hard. And then one day he heard from the Lord, and the Lord said, uh, Jeremy, it's not too hard. It's impossible. And he understood that the source of his anxiety, and listen, listen, saints, this is so important. He understood that the source of his anxiety was that he wanted to control the outcomes of his many responsibilities. And he couldn't do that. And none of us can. So he found peace in hearing the Lord say, that he had only called him to do two things. Jeremy, here are the two things I've called you to do. Work hard at the things I've called you to do and trust me with the outcomes. And that changed Jeremy's perspective, which changed his life. And I believe it can change ours too. Now, it reminded me when I heard him say that, and I shared with this with the men, uh, they are at the, in the class here on Sunday morning. I don't remember. But Neil Anderson, you may know that name. He wrote books called like The Bondage Breaker and others. But Neil Anderson years ago, not Neil Armstrong. Don't confuse him with the astronaut. Neil Anderson said something similar about the difference between goals and desires. What's the difference between a goal and a desire? <laughs> well, let me illustrate it. He said something like this. If we have a goal to have family harmony where everybody in the family gets along all the time, who can block that goal? Every single member of the family. The dog can block that goal. The neighbors can block that goal when they meddle up in your business. He said, you know, it's a good desire, but if that's your goal, you're going to be continually frustrated. Why don't we have family harmony? You're going to continually be angry because that's the outcome that you're expecting and it's not happening because there's so many people that are blocking it. It's fine to have a desire for family harmony. But your goal would be better suited for something that only you can do and therefore only you can block. So here might, here's, a, here's a good goal. To speak with kindness to your family members and not use anger to manipulate or to get your own way. If that's your personal goal, I'm going to speak with kindness to my family and I'm not going to use anger when I get frustrated to manipulate or to bully my way. That's a goal that only you can block. Therefore, that's a good goal. You pray about it. You're not going to do it perfectly. You ask the Lord to help you, and you see Him to help you take steps to achieve that goal, understanding you will fail at times, and God will give grace. So we cast our anxieties known on the Lord, knowing that he, he cares for us. I think Peter learned this even at the point of his greatest failure. Maybe it didn't become real to him until he was restored on that, on that beachfront. But I think he saw a glimpse of it. Because when Peter uttered his third denial with a curse, Luke reports the Lord turned 
and looked at Peter. Think of that. Peter's cursing, denying that he even knows this man, and Jesus is close enough in the trial to the courtyard where Peter is that he can look and see Jesus turning as the, as the cock crowed. He can see Jesus looking at him. Peter's looking at Jesus, looking at him. And now as he writes his letter years later, he's humbled, he's restored, and he's urging all of us to cast our cares on the Lord, knowing that he cares for us. He cares about you, not just when you do the right thing, but when you do the wrong thing, when you do the unthinkable thing, which is what Peter did. He cares for you. And he looks at you, not with disdain or disappointment or disgust. How many understand that Jesus did not have any of those on his face when he looked at Peter? He looked at Peter with compassion, with love. Unconditional love. So saints, here's the the lesson today. It's very simple. Let's cast anxieties on the shoulders of the only one who can carry them. He said, take my yoke upon uh, upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He has this picture of this huge oxen, rippling muscles, yoked to this tiny little oxen. And he just kind of has to drag drag that, that other little oxen along. And that's what he's doing. He's carrying the weight. You're yoked with him. You're not doing any of the work. He's doing all of it. Take my yoke upon you, he said. Come yoke with me. Come pull with me because I'll do all the work. You just have to cast your anxieties on me and I'll watch over you. I'm going to pray and then we're going to ask the young people who've been working with Jason on the Lord's Prayer to come up and they're going to recite the Lord's Prayer for us. They've been doing working on this and talking about it, and he's been breaking down the phrases and teaching them the Lord's Prayer. So after I pray, young people who are in that class with Jason, and Jason, you come up too. Just come up and stand on the stage and lead us in the uh, Lord's Prayer. And then after that, we will greet one another in the Lord. Let's pray. You know, I I really want to ask you, with your eyes closed, your heads bowed, not looking around, I want to ask you something. Are you carrying anxieties right now that you could cast, you could throw on the Lord? Are you anxious about anything? I know most of us are. We have anxieties. Can you take a moment and and give those to the Lord? Ask Him to take those, relinquish those. Father, I pray that you would help us to die to trying to control outcomes and live to the freedom that we have in Christ to trust you with the outcomes and just to do what we're supposed to do by God's grace to serve and love and give and tend to and feed others. I pray for those who are burdened this morning with anxieties to the point that they have trouble sleeping at night, the point that they have trouble concentrating on daily tasks because the anxieties that they carry are almost consuming them. I pray that 
that in your spirit, in your power today, that process of casting those anxieties on you would begin and that they would continue. We would all continue to do that day by day and that you would bless us with grace to do that and to see the results of that freedom in our life, in our walk with you, in our love for others, in our attention to the things you've called us to. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. Antioch meets every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. at 1600 Powerline Road in Elon, North Carolina. For more information about Mark and the books he's written, go to jmarkfox.com.